If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I'd invite you to turn open to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. There are few passages in the Bible that are more beautiful than the 23rd Psalm. It's, it's a psalm of both, both uh, majestic beauty and also assuring comfort. And I imagine many of you are quite familiar with it, and perhaps some of you may have even memorized it, being as only as long as it is, I believe only six verses. But um, tonight, I would like to talk to you about this beloved psalm. I doubt very much that I can add very much beauty to this psalm, as it's already beautiful in and of itself. I doubt I can add anything to that. But instead, I thought tonight I might try and, and take a different route, just to guide you through that passage, perhaps as a tour guide might guide you uh, through a museum to show off a wonderful work of art and try and point out all the things that make it beautiful as such. Or somebody who's out in, in the wild and showing a, a beautiful mountain top and, and trying to point out all of the fine features of it. I can't add anything to this psalm, but I will try my best to bring out some of the, the beautiful aspects of it and to make it as clear as possible. And um, even though I doubt many of us understand what it would be like to be an, a shepherd from the ancient Near East, um, all of us are able to grasp the basic message of comfort and the assurance, the assurance that's conveyed in this psalm. Especially in times of distress, such as um, the death of a loved one, we instinctively turn to the assuring words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So my purpose tonight in this message is to help us more clearly understand the imagery that's used in this psalm to convey comfort to, to those who are part of God's flock by faith in Jesus Christ. And so I hope that this passage will provide great comfort to you, either now, if that's what you're in need of, or in the future, as it comes to your mind. But let's look at the text of this psalm. You have it turned open already. And again, if you don't have a copy of your Bible with you, that's all right. We have plenty located directly underneath you in the pew racks. If you look at the superscription of the psalm, you see Psalm 23, of course, and then it says a psalm of David, a psalm of David. It says David is the author. And that doesn't surprise us as we get into this. David was, after all, a shepherd in his youth. And we see that this occupation he had apparently wasn't without purpose. David's shepherding days served a purpose to prepare him for shepherding God's flock, ultimately. And uh, we see that as he gets older. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 71 says that God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of ewes and suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel in his inheritance. And we often overlook this, but Exodus chapter 3 tells us that even Moses himself was a shepherd before his days of leading the nation of Israel. And I think in both cases, the occupation helped prepare these men for what God would later call them to do in shepherding his people. Now, it may appear at first glance that David would have written this psalm as a boy while tending his flock. And that's often how we think of this if we're picturing it in our minds. Um, we think of this young boy, David, perhaps, you know, sitting by a tree with a harp at his side and he has a, a sheep in one hand and a pen in the other. Right. Uh, almost as if he's writing this as a young shepherd boy. And, um, you know, it's very possible that, in fact, many of 
his psalms were written while he was out in the fields with his sheep. But I think it would be a little difficult to imagine that the psalm that we have in front of us, a psalm of such depth, could have been written uh, by a young boy. I, I think we get the sense from the psalm that David was a little bit older when he wrote this. For a young boy doesn't know very much about the dangers and disappointments of life, or as much, say, as somebody who is older. And, and certainly this, this psalm shows a lot of wisdom on the part of the writer that makes me believe that perhaps this was written a little bit after that period of time in his life. Um, verses 4 and 5 talk about disappointments in life or oppression. And, and I think he knows a little bit more about that later on. And if we read uh, the house of the Lord in verse six as a reference to the temple, uh, that was something that David only really began to think about and hope for later on in his life. And so uh, that wouldn't really fit so much with him writing it as, as a young boy. So we can imagine that this text may have been written at some point while he was king over the nation of Israel. But let's look at the first few verses. Verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, thy comfort me. You probably could have quoted a lot of that right there with me as, I, as I'm reading it to you. Now, Knowing that David was a shepherd in his early years, we may be inclined to interpret this psalm from the perspective of the shepherd, as if David's writing it from the perspective of him as a shepherd in the past. However, uh, Philip Keller has written a book called Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. You may be familiar with that book, and it's a very good one for the study of this particular psalm. He writes from the background of growing up in East Africa and making his living as being a shepherd or a sheep rancher for about eight years. However, even Keller, a person who was a shepherd in his youth, uh, he points out that the vantage point of this psalm is from the perspective of the sheep, not from the perspective of the shepherd. So I think with that in mind, a good title for this passage could be a sheep looks at the shepherd in Psalm 23 and not the other way around. So let us consider then our great shepherd from the viewpoint of the sheep. The shepherd here is introduced in the first verse. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the shepherd image would have been a very common one in the ancient Near East and is very obviously based upon that particular uh, occupation of that day. The Israelites in particular were, were known as shepherds. You might remember from the story of Joseph that when he leads his brothers out of that land and to settle into the, the land of Egypt, where he's now a very important official, he's talking with his brothers and he's trying to give them some advice as to how they should go up to, to the Pharaoh. And uh, he says, don't tell them that you are shepherds, even though that's what they are. Because being a shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So we see there that being a shepherd was a very common thing. In fact, that was pretty much how the nation of Israel was defined back in that time. And uh, 
shepherding was very common. Because of this, over time, the term shepherd came to be used in a much broader way, in a metaphoric way, describing leadership, either of an individual or a group. And we see this very early in the Bible. In Genesis 48, uh, Jacob spoke of God as the God who has been my shepherd all of my life. We see later on that that title is used of kings, especially in David's case. Uh, Psalm, I'm sorry, not Psalms, First uh, Samuel 5, verse 2, and uh, Psalm 78, verse 71. And even the Messiah who was to come, of whom David was a type or a prefigurement, um, is referred to in Ezekiel as a shepherd. Thus, in the New Testament, we can see how it comes that Jesus is identified as the great shepherd. Okay? And that's found in a number of passages. So when people were spoken of as shepherds in the Old Testament, a whole list of qualities would have come to mind in the ancient reader because they would have been familiar with it uh, much more than we are. We're not really familiar with shepherds that much nowadays. So if I were to say that, you know, that you're like a shepherd, not a whole lot jumps to our minds, at least as readily as it would have back then. But in their day, they would have understood that. That term would have been used in that way quite frequently. And when David spoke of the Lord as his shepherd, he thought of him not only as his provider and protector, but also as his king. He thought of God as his shepherd with the breadth of meaning that this term conveyed in the ancient Near East and, and also in the law. And because God was David's shepherd, he lacked, it says, or wanted nothing. You see, a good shepherd is all a sheep needs since a good shepherd by his very nature will always supply the sheep's needs. In a very similar way, a good father will provide for all the needs of his child. David says clearly, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I cannot stress just how true that is, that God truly does supply everything that we need. And it's interesting, I think, to compare this to the work of Satan in contrast to God as our shepherd, providing everything that we want. Satan, on the other hand, has tried to portray throughout history uh, a picture of God that was false. A picture of God that says uh, God is a begrudging giver who only provides when he absolutely must. That's the picture of Satan that we see in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. And you might remember that there Satan tried to portray God as somebody who doesn't give us all of their needs. He, you know, he, God provided every tree of the garden for Adam and Eve to eat, except for the one which he told them not to take. And, and Satan tries to breed a little discontentment in their hearts and says, well, did God really say you won't die from that? What, what about this tree? Why can't you eat from that? What's so bad about it? There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, God knows that if you eat it, you're going to become like him. So God's just trying to keep from you the things that will really make you happy and the things that you really want. So you see from the beginning that Satan's trying to work against this picture of God as being the one who provides everything that we could possibly want. And we see that in our own lives, how Satan tries to breed discontentment in whatever area we, we think of. The words of this, of this psalm that say, I shall not want, is completely opposed then to the messages of today's culture. We are constantly being told through advertisements, through everything, that, that what we have is not enough. You need the latest clothes. You need the latest car. You need the latest um, you know, item, whether that be an iPod or a, a television set or, or something else. 
Um, we always need the latest thing because people are constantly coming out with something new in an attempt to make us discontent with what we have. And the same is true of relationships. The, uh, the idea that's portrayed is that you should, you know, be with as many different girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever to be the happiest. That's how it's portrayed in TV shows that the really popular kids on these shows have, you know, a ton of girlfriends and have slept around a ton of times. And that's what truly brings happiness. And so whether you're married or not married, uh, you're kind of taught implicitly to be uh, discontent with the person that you're with and, and almost that the life of, of, you know, having more people, uh, you know, to date or whatever, uh, to sleep around with, whatever the case may be, uh, brings a more fulfilled life and makes you happier. Um, that is very much contrary to the way that God would have us to think. God is, in fact, everything that we would need uh, for life and godliness and for contentment. God is our shepherd. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's all-caring. He is enough. He is sufficient. And with him, we truly need nothing else. See, the Israelites could look back at their history and find this to be true. David's not just you know, uttering empty words here. God was faithful to them for all of their needs during their years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 2.7 says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked a thing. The Israelites also had God's promise that they would lack nothing when they possessed the land of Canaan, when they got through that wilderness wandering and finally were coming to that land God had promised them. Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 9 says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and, and, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. You see, he just keeps naming Plenty of things, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall lack nothing, lack nothing. Uh, And a a land, it says, whose stones are iron out of whose hills you can dig copper just keeps naming things. You're not going to lack a thing. God certainly provided for his people in the past. And we see that God promises to always provide for their needs in the future. Okay. And David confesses it now to us in this psalm so that we will believe it in the future as well. Now, it's important to make this, this, this distinction here. Someone might say, well, what about the times when Christians are in poverty or times in great need? Is, is this passage blind to the realities of the world? Trying to portray the fact that, well, God's people will always be in abundance and, and there will always be plenty of resources around and that there would be no such thing as Christian poverty. Okay. I don't think that's true and I don't think that's what it's trying to convey here. I don't think is, God is short-sighted in that way. But we ask, how does this, that reality fit in with this verse? Well, we acknowledge, first of all, that there are times when Christians may be in poverty. God never promises us uh, wealth or beyond imagination, though some churches try and teach that today. Uh, you can think of some mega churches who try and say that if you have enough faith, you know, if you just believe enough, God will make you rich. And God wants you to be prosperous and and have everything you possibly want. God doesn't want you to be in, in poverty in any way or doesn't want you to have to be without. And so, in fact, God wants you to have everything. He wants you to have a new car. He wants you to be free from debt always and and uh, and, and have this great house to go with it and and have all these things. 
Okay. Um, except the problem with that viewpoint is it ignores the very life of our Savior, who didn't have a whole lot to call his own. He didn't even have a house of his own. He walked around without even enough money to pay a tax, a simple tax. We see in a passage that he has to draw that coin out of the mouth of a fish from the water. Okay, so he didn't even have that on him. So that way of thinking totally flies in the face of the lifestyle that Jesus lived and modeled for us. And that totally flies in the face of the life of Paul, who said, I I have learned what it's like to be in, in want and in plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. Okay. So it's not that God is saying, well, if you're following me, then life will just be peachy for the rest of your life. Okay, we, we learn that from Jesus life. We learn that from that Philippians 412 uh, verse that I just quoted to you. Okay. God does not promise and we should not expect that everything will always be in abundance, but he does provide for our needs every day. And he does give us the strength needed for each day so that we really can say, even though we may not have a lot. That I am not in want. God supplies everything that I need. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not be in want. God provides my needs every day. He is a good shepherd. We don't need to look any further than just the example of the manna that was provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. God certainly provided everything they needed. And God certainly made sure that they were not in want as he was their shepherd. And yet... They only had enough food for each day. They didn't have anything for tomorrow even. They didn't know where their food was coming from next except for the promise that God had given them that he was going to provide that small amount for them the next day. And that's all they had. Yet God was still true. And I think that's important that we define this verse in that way and we understand what that means so that we don't have unrealistic expectations and we understand and have great confidence our God who really does supply our wants every day. We can look back and say that, you know what, God has supplied my needs every day. I can't think of a day when that's not been true. Why? Because his word is true and he keeps his promises. So now in verses two through four, David describes these things for which he as one of God's sheep will never lack. And much of what follows is poetic in nature. So as we're reading this, make note that we need to interpret it accordingly. As I read verses two through the first part of verse three, I believe the first thing David is trying to point out is that God provides rest for his sheep. That seems to be the key in, in these verses. The expression lie down, okay, speaks of rest. And uh, somebody has pointed out somewhere, I don't remember where or where I read this, but uh, somebody has pointed out that sheep don't graze while they're lying down. So that kind of comes after, after that fact. Ezekiel 34, verse 15 says... Um, Uh, I don't I guess I didn't I didn't write it down. I thought I was going to quote it there, but I don't. But in that that verse, as I'm turning to it, it says something to the effect of of God providing uh, for his people as a shepherd. And it says that he feeds them. He leads them in green pastures. And then afterward, they will lie down in peace. Chapter 34, verse 15 says, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. Verse 14, the one before it, that's what I meant to quote. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. So God provides the food that they need first and then he allows them to rest in that provision. Psalm 23, 
The adequate provision of lust pasture land is, is pointed out. Grassy meadows, quiet waters, it says. Or literally, you might read it back in, in the Hebrew, I'm told, as waters of rest. And that's in a margin, I believe, if you have a New American Standard with you tonight. Okay, this is the, the rest that God provides for his people. He leads them, his sheep, uh, to rest and causes them to lie down and rest. The first line of verse three says he restores my soul now. And, and that continues the thought of rest, I think, which God provides for his sheep. If you take it in the most literal sense, uh, the ex- expression conveys David's thought that God renews and, and restores our lives and he sustains it as well. So as David's shepherd, God provides him with both rest, physical rest, and also restoration. And he does that. We see that they're connected. Okay, this idea we just talked about, this provision of things, of food and water and all that. The two are very much connected so that God first provides rest in the sense that he provides for uh, David's needs physically. And, and now also he restores his soul in another means. I think we can see that they're very much related, these two thoughts, that the idea of providing for one's needs and rest. Certainly, you can understand that you can sleep a little bit better when you know that your needs are taken care of, when you know that there isn't a physical need that, that has to be met, when the bills are paid, when there's food on the table, that kind of thing. We, we can understand how that brings a measure of rest. Okay? And God says, first and foremost, that he is the provider of that kind of rest. But I think we can also include with that a greater sense as well, that God provides rest for our souls, for our souls. OK, and uh, if we look in Psalm 19, verse seven, we read this, that the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. That's the key part right there. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. OK, so I think that this is also what is being implied here in Psalm 23, that God not only provides our basic needs and in doing so, he gives us rest. But also that he goes beyond that and he provides something even greater. And that is his word. It says the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. So he restores us not just in the physical things, but also in the things that weary us in life. We may become discouraged at relationships that we have with other people or that or of hard times that come upon us. But God is the author of restoration. And it says he brings restoration to our soul through his word. So that he gives us rest, not only in the physical things that we need, but also in the hardships of life. And in doing so, he is somebody we can come to looking for his words to calm us and restore us and restore our soul in the words that he provides for us. And so this book that we hold in front of us tonight has power, power as God's agent to restore our souls in times of great distress. First line of, of, of verse three we've covered now. He restores our soul. We've talked about him providing rest for us. We move on now to the second and third lines of verse three. And that reminds us that a shepherd leads his flock. OK, he, he gives us rest. And now it says he leads or guides his people. It says he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Guidance is recognized as one of the principal tasks of a shepherd. Okay, And you think about that. Sheep, 
I've been told, aren't very smart animals. Okay, so they really need to be told, directed what to do. So guidance on the part of a shepherd is very important. And we would associate that as a very important part of a shepherd's job. And, and God doesn't just guide us in some vague direction. But it says he leads us on paths of righteousness. Okay. Often it's necessary for a shepherd to lead his flock great distances to find both pasture and water. And some paths are dangerous and should be avoided. And so the good shepherd leads his sheep in good or right paths. It's not just a matter of leading us in the right path, but it also um, involves us in, in, involves leading us in paths of righteousness. OK, not just that a shepherd has to go on the right way to avoid danger, but in, in an intent, that's what he's avoiding. Now we look to the positive. What is he leading us to? And that's righteousness. It's a wonderful word of comfort for those who seem to think that God's will is some sort of mystery known only to, you know, a, a, an elect few that are fortunate to find it. One of the assurances the psalmist uh, gives us is that he's confident that he will never lack the leading of God in his life. And that's important because some people think that God's will is so indiscernible. Like, I don't know where God is is leading, that it seems that God isn't leading at all. That God kind of just sets us off on our way and we're kind of blind the rest of our lives. No, it says he leads us in paths of righteousness. He is leading us actively, whether we recognize it or not. Sometimes it's not so discernible to us, is it, where God is taking us? Sometimes we wish we would hear a voice from God telling us where to go. Um, God, what am I supposed to be doing at this point in my life? Where are you leading us? What are you doing? And we're constantly praying, trying to seek that will. But the comforting thing here is that even when God seems to be silent and we don't know exactly where he's leading, it says, nevertheless, he still is leading us. He is leading us on paths of righteousness. He's all working it out for a purpose. Whether we can discern that purpose yet or not, he's still leading. And, and we find comfort in that fact that actively right now, no matter if, you know, how much I'm aware of it, God is working in my life to lead me somewhere. And, and that's, that's a good thing. And he's leading us in paths of righteousness to bring us closer to the image of his son. There's a reason why God leads us in paths of righteousness. It says he guides us for his name's sake. That is to say, God leads us for the sake of his reputation. Now, that's not a selfish thing on the part of God. It's uh, just an acknowledgement of, of the greatest kind of direction that we could possibly have in life. There is no greater thing that we could do but to devote our lives to bringing glory to God. And so that's not something that we look at and say, oh, how selfish of God to be leading us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Rather, that's something we can take great joy in, knowing that there's nothing better that I could be doing with my life than bringing glory to the one who made me and to the one who controls all things in the universe. That is a wonderful thing. And uh, one might say that the true measure of a shepherd is, after all, the condition of his flock. If the flock is not doing well, it reflects poorly on the shepherd. So you might say God's reputation rests upon his ability to guide and care for his people. And just as parents sometimes are evaluated by the way they care for their children, shepherds are judged by the condition of their flocks. OK, if I were to find a shepherd asleep and all of his sheep missing and this person you know, had been asleep for hours, we would say that that person isn't a very good shepherd. 
Okay, but God leads us for his namesake. And that's not to say that either that that we can take that and then, you know, uh, manipulate God for that. Some people have tried to do that in the past, saying, well, God, you know, if um, if you allow me to to experience all these bad things in my life, then people are going to look at you and say, oh, well, you're not such a great a God to allow this person to happen. Uh, all these things to happen to this person, rather. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's just going to disgrace your name. No, we can't hold it above God like that. But on the other hand, God does protect his name and he does work in our hearts and work in our lives to bring us to a place of righteousness so that his name can be glorified. He does care about his his honor and his name and uh, the way he is viewed in the world. In part, uh, that is why he didn't allow the children of Israel to be totally destroyed when they were in the wilderness. And and uh, God was about to destroy them, but he turned away from his wrath because Moses said to him, you know, what will the other nations think? When they see that, that your people have been destroyed, what will they say about your name? God protects his name and, and God guards it. And God wants us to make that our top priority as well, to hold up his name as, as a banner and to live our lives in a way worthy of that name. So God leads us in paths of righteousness so that he can be glorified. And it's comforting because that would lead us to the most fulfilling life possible. As I said, other people want to try and convince us that a more fulfilling life can be had by seeking after things and seeking after your own pleasure. Okay, but God doesn't lead us in that path. God doesn't try and make us discontent and seek after more stuff. God really does want the best for us. And he really does want to give us an abundant life. The problem is that some people take that term abundant life. God wants you to have an abundant life and misunderstand it. They take it in a selfish way to mean, oh, that means God wants to give me lots of things. But in reality, what that means is God wants to live, have us live our lives so that we glorify him. And that truly is a fulfilling life. So we move on to verse four. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Okay, actually, when we come to this, you might see a margin note. Okay, in Psalm 23, that says, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in reality, a more literal way to translate that is is through the darkest valley. Okay, rather than the valley of the shadow of the death, that that's more taken from the way the King James translated. And 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 because it's grown so popular, it's just so much of how we remember the psalm. Future translations have kind of been a little hesitant to go and change that, to change the wording of a psalm so many people know and love. And it's not that it's inaccurate. It's just a different way of putting it. But you could also say that that is the, the, the darkest valley. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. Okay. Verse four qualifies the I shall not want of the first half of verse. I'm sorry, the second half of, of verse one. The fact that God was David's shepherd did uh, did not keep him from many trials and tribulations. His life. Uh, was sought without cause by King Saul, who became jealous of David's success. And for many other reasons, David truly was a man of sorrows. Think about it, okay? He says, I will fear no evil, but let's not misunderstand that to me. Nothing evil will ever befall me, or no disaster will ever overtake a Christian, okay? The guy who's writing it, King David, knew better than that, and certainly wouldn't have written these things and intended that way, knowing the life that he lived. 
Okay, so we know it can't mean it that way because we we know from from the Bible that he was chased by King Saul on more than one occasion. He was threatened against his own life, that he might be killed. And he had many other things happen to him. He had his own sons rebel against him. He didn't have an easy life, per se, all the time. Okay, Uh, he was a man of sorrows in a way, in a smaller way than Christ, of course. But you might say in a way that points us forward to Christ. So nowhere did God promise David or or any of us, for that matter, freedom from suffering and trials in life. Even though God is our shepherd, we will still go through trying times. And pastor said, as he's done series on first and second Peter, that it's not just that we, you know, should accept that as a possibility. We should accept it as a reality, as something that will most likely happen to us in our lifetime. God's not promising to deliver us from all of those things or or, I'm sorry, remove all those from from our lives. But he does promise us that when those things come, we will never be in want. Okay, and I want you to put these verses together in this way and that this this verse four is interpreting what's meant by verse one. Okay, even though we will walk through the darkest times in our lives, God's going to be with us. It doesn't say God's going to be with you and keep you from the darkest times. So that you'll never experience them. It says, even though I walk through them, God's going to be there and you're going to fear no evil. You're not going to want for anything. God's still with us. We learn something else here in order for God's sheep to be led through grassy meadows and to restful streams. We almost get the sense here that it's almost inevitable that they must pass through dark and dangerous places. The paths of righteousness, verse three, are not always peaceful paths. And while we're never promised uh, that there will be no evil, we can be assured that we do not need to fear that evil. You think of the life of Job, okay? And Job certainly was being led by God on paths of righteousness. God was trying to make him more righteous through the trials that he experienced. But we find in his life that for him to become more righteous, for him to be a little more Christ-like, God had to lead him through a trying time. So not only can we expect trials in our lives, in our lives, but we can also expect that sometimes those trials are necessary to produce that change in character within us, to get to that place of, of grassy meadow and quiet waters. But God often leads us through that and doesn't mean that God's evil doesn't mean God's not looking out for us. It very much means that he's still with us and that he's looking out for our best as our shepherd. And even though we're in dark times from time to time. God is there. Now, there's a subtle but significant change which occurs in verse four. Did you notice it? Uh, It's a change in pronouns. You see that more impersonal he that he's been using to refer to God now changes to the more intimate you or thou. If you have a King James for you or thou art with me. Okay, it changes. Somebody has observed that God goes before us. When the path is smooth, but he stands beside us when the way is dangerous and frightening. It's his presence that causes all of our fears to become stilled and peaceful and to disappear. And furthermore, it says his rod and staff give us comfort. It's helpful to know that the rod and the staff were instruments of protection and assistance to the shepherd. They weren't just walking sticks. Sometimes we read that and we think, Okay, rod and staff, he's using this like, you know, old man would use to, to walk and over. It, they could be used for that. And in fact, the shepherd would as he's going over rough terrain. 
Okay, it, it includes that, but I think the greater sense being used here of Ron's staff is the element of protection. Protection. Because those two I- items, the uh, rod and staff, were used to ward off enemies that were trying to uh, you know, take from the shepherd the straying sheep, maybe uh, the, the predator that was encircling the, the, the flock. And, and that shepherd would use the rod and the staff to, to drive away those, those animals. So the fact that God's rod and staff protects us and comforts us, that's, that's a wonderful thing to us. His presence and his power is always with us to keep us through the trials. As he himself said in Hebrews 13, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. Now, in the last two verses, you see verses five and six, it changes a little bit. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness or goodness and mercy, depending on your translation, will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, now notice the change that happens. And, and I didn't really notice this before until t- this, this week uh, when I was studying this. The, the imagery shifts. O- originally, he's talking about God as a shepherd, right? And now in these last two verses, he switches the analogy. Now he describes a similar relationship, but now he pictures God as a sort of banquet host. What's the reason for the change? Well, I believe that the relationship of a host with the guest is meant to convey a little bit more of a closer personal relationship, perhaps than a shepherd and a sheep might, might convey. God's intentionally making a point about his closeness and his love of the believer and his personal relationship, I think, that they enjoy with him as their God. You might think, okay, a shepherd and a sheep, that's kind of like an animal to a, you know, a human being relationship. And there is an element of protection and love you know, but but ultimately, at the end of the day, we love fellow human beings more than we love our animals. No matter how much a shepherd loves his sheep, the, the fact that the the analogy is upped a bit and brought to this element of a of a banquet host kind of brings us a little bit closer in our, our understanding and our relationship to God. I think that's what's going on here. You see, no greater security or comfort could be obtained by a traveler in the ancient Near East than to be offered the hospitality of a home. And here we see that same thing happening. Uh, the psalmist's head is anointed with oil. Um, he's given food. He's given protection. And, he, and this person is now protected from all the dangers of the outside. He doesn't have to lie awake in the open field fearing what kind of predator is going to come along. He's now inside with the host uh, who has offered his protection and given him everything he needs. So in conclusion, we have Psalm 23 offering a great deal of hope and comfort to the child of God. I don't think we should ever forget the kind of loving care that God has for us as our shepherd. God is with us wherever we are. God is with us even in the darkest of times when it seems that he's being quiet and and absent from us. He leads us in paths of righteousness, not for our own benefit, not for our own personal gain, but for his name's sake so that we can be more like him, more Christ-like. And he does all this with a final thought that one day we will dwell with him in the house of the Lord forever. One day we'll complete that relationship. We'll be made fully in the image of Christ and we will dwell with him forever and ever. And those are certainly comforting words for us to take with us tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of comfort. I ask that they would stay with us.
that this would be a passage we'd turn to, that we'd bookmark, that we'd earmark, that we'd remember, or perhaps commit to memory fully so that we can rely upon it and rely upon your goodness uh, when, when we go through times of trial. We say uh, tonight that, that one of the ways you bring us rest, God, is, is that you um, give us your word. And that brings us great rest and peace within our hearts. And so I pray that this passage would bring us great peace in times when our hearts are troubled. Thank you for being the shepherd who leads us all of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.